0: Listening to ComedySlamRadio.com. From our studios to the world, we bring you the finest in quality entertainment. So pop some popcorn, grab a smooch buddy, and
1: settle in for another fine show from ComedySlamRadio.com. Ah. Thank you for tuning in to the Let's Be Frank show on ComedySlamRadio.com where we bring you national touring and celebrity comedian interviews. Follow us on Twitter at Let's Be Frank Show. And if you miss our live broadcast, you can find us on Stitcher Radio and iTunes at Let's Be Frank's Podcast. And please contact us with any questions or information about advertising and sponsoring at Let's Be Frank with Dave Frank at Yahoo.com. Good evening and welcome to another episode of the Let's Be Frank Show. With us this evening we have comedian and author, Daryl Littleton. How you doing, Daryl?
2: Good, good. Thanks for having me on again, Dave.
1: No problem. Oh, we, we got should. a new book. We gotta talk about the new book. It's not like we're gonna talk about the same old crap. We got new funnier shit to talk about now.
2: That's right. Yes, and it's not just history. A, yeah, and it's should not just we, a
1: comedian should it's we the,
2: remind them? Should we remind them what the old stuff is
1: though? Of course we should.
2: Yeah, old anxiety, since we're going to get rid of it. Uh, there is black comedians on black comedy. There you a go. A history of African American comedy that was made to the documentary Why We Laugh by Robert Townsend, and that's been airing on Showtime the last couple of years. It's on Netflix. And then that the other book uh, was Pimp Down, The Rise and Fall of Cat Williams, and there's been another development since the last time I was on the show.
0: Oh, uh, the break us off some it's info.
2: option. Well, the book has been option. It's going to be made into a film. We're, we're crewing up. Uh, we've got a director, DP. Uh, we've got a very highly rated musical guy who's been in the business, uh, wow, spanning three <laughs> decades as far as what I know. And um, it's going to be out next year.
1: Now, are you going to be in it? Is Kat going to be in it? What's going on? Are you guys talking?
2: No. No, no, no. no we're, not, we're not talking. All right. <laughs> so – I would talk to him. I would talk to Cat in a minute, and, you know, I'm willing to bury the hatchet. He's the one who wanted to bury the hatchet in me, remember? Yeah, I
1: was was going to say, man, he's the one who put the hit out.
2: Yeah, yeah, since we could talk about that now. um, Yeah, I mean, for those who did not know or have not read the book or uh, didn't listen to the show (laughs) last time, I wrote a book called Pimp Down, The Rise and Fall of Cat Williams. Well, I've known Cat Williams over 10 years, and I, I wrote for him as his personal writer for two years, practically two years. And as we all know, he kind of spiraled out of control. And the public really shouldn't have known that he had an entourage of thirty-eight people. He was spending a lot of money back in two thousand eight, two thousand seven, two thousand eight—for you know, span of I would say three, four years. When I say spending money, somebody would use the term "throwaway money." Cat would literally throw away money. He'd ride around like Thurston Howell the Third, you know, just riding around with you know a bunch of money on him. Uh, like he was going on a three hour tour and just grab a handful and throw it out in the street on a corner, like in a bad neighborhood and say, you know, "Uh, the people in this neighborhood could use this money. And, you know, uh, somebody could get stabbed in the throat too, (laughs) cat. You know I mean? That's not the way you issue out money, but it's all of that stuff is chronicled in the book as well as the book really is about fame and about comedy and show business. And so there's a lot more people, Dave Chappelle's and then Martin Lawrence, uh, Wow, Jamie Foxx, Will Smith. There's a lot of stories in the book regarding art business. And Cat is just a central character, but I would say he really only takes the 50% of the book, but that 50% was enough that somebody said, this this would make a great movie. And that's really why I wrote it, one of the reasons, too. It's a great story. It's it's a great (laughs) story arc, and he's like the poster boy for uh, 21st century uh, media and the scrutiny. You know, it's 24 hours now. It wasn't that way back in Richard Pryor, Red Fox, George Carlin's day. You could hide a lot of stuff. Definitely. Yeah. So So that's going to be made to a movie. And then, you know, I had a book out, uh, Forefathers, and the same people that are making the uh, pimp down uh, into a film are looking at that to, they're prepping that right now uh, for a film as well. So um, that's been some good stuff. But that's all in the past, folks.
1: Definitely in the past. Let's talk about the future, the new book for uh, uh, where where you're interviewing all the female comedians. Tell us a little bit about that and why you wanted to go down that road.
2: Okay. Now, that book is called Comedians, um, and like the other books, it's on Amazon.com. It's already there. You can get it right now. Um, The release date was supposed to be October 23rd, but you can get it right now. We didn't wait. Um, the thing about it is I married a comedian. I went through a, I was married for 20 years, and I went through a divorce. And uh, because after 20 years, it's like, well, this really isn't working. <laughs> I've tried everything I can think of. It's just not working out. So, uh, and then I married a comedian after that. And when I wrote the first book, Black Comedians on Black Comedy, I thought that was the most oppressed group I really could write about. I had great personal knowledge of it. But then she would tell me stories just as we were talking that you know, I've been in the business over 20 years, so I had known a lot of comedians, but I was not privy to all the information she was giving me. And then there was other stories that other comedians would tell her, and that's why I said, you know what? And it was really her idea. She said, you should really write a book about this. And it's like, you know what? We really should. You know, if she wanted to write a book about aardvarks, I probably would have said no. I don't think that's a good idea at all. <laughs> but I thought this. <laughs> I thought this was a a good subject, and we cover, um, I don't think in any book you can cover everything, so I think when anybody sends that, they're full of it, but I think we cover a great um, extent starting in the 10th century all the way up to when we stopped writing it, which was earlier this year. Uh, we cover a lot. If there's anybody we missed, and we know there's a couple of people we missed, um, I don't really consider them real comedians if I miss them. So like somebody pointed out that I missed Gene Harlow. Oh, well, I'm sorry about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a million people that you could miss, but it's a matter of, you know, you got to go with who wants, who's willing to be involved in the book, who you know, who you can get a hold of. I mean, I've had experiences where I wanted to just interview people for the show that I can't get a hold of anybody, you know, or or their managers just turn it down before you even get a, you know, to really find out. So you even if, you know, they don't even know if you reached out to that person. But when you look at Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, when you look at the cover of Comedians, uh, Laugh, Be a Lady, I mean, there's plenty of great people from, I mean, Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, there's just so many phenomenal comedians. It, the one or two that are yeah. left out, I mean, you, you can't begrudge anybody or anything. It just right. happens.
2: I mean, I mean, Lucille Ball, you know, um, Mae West is on the cover. Uh, Gracie Allen is on the cover. and Esther, you know, Rolanda <laughs> Page is there. Tina Fey, Margaret Cho. I mean, there's so many people on the cover. Joan Rivers. It wasn't, you know, going in with the first book, I interviewed 125 comedians. And I got people like Bernie Mac and, you know, uh, Eddie Murphy and Dick Gregory, who did the intro and all that. So I did really try to get, like, legends, but I also tried to get people that were coming up. Like, the last person in that first book is Kevin Hart. Well, he's the hottest African-American comedian. I wrote that book five years ago. Because to me he was the future of where comedy was going. It had to be... It couldn't stay in the, you know, hey, I'm broke, we got a bunch of roaches. Oh, you know, uh, the woe is me, uh, black syndrome form of comedy where, you know, you come on and dance for five minutes and then give it up to the ladies for another three or four. And I saw Kevin doing what I think a lot of comedians... It doesn't really matter what race. It, we're in a diversified field now. It's not just... I tell jokes on stage, I do stand-up, like you. You do stand-up, but you're also on radio. That's right. So there's two feathers right there, which also makes you a producer. That's three. You write your own stuff. You write your own copy. Four. So every comedian within them, and I try to tell all comedians this, you probably got at least three to seven slashes in what you do. You're a public speaker right off the bat because you're a comedian.
1: You know, that's one of the reasons why I got into into comedy to begin with was to be able to feel even more comfortable with public speaking, which I was okay with in the sales format or in stores or in small groups, but I wanted to be the guy that felt 100% comfortable in front of 50 people or 600 people. I wanted to have that, you know, and it, it's been phenomenal. It was a great way for me to learn it.
2: Yeah, because you know what they say, People's greatest fear is not death. That's the second greatest fear. The first is public speaking. Mm-hmm. So comedians defy death every time we go on stage, which is odd but true. Um, most would rather be dead than to stand up and tell jokes to an audience of yeah. people because they may fool them.
1: And you know, or, even you, know, you probably know even better than me some of the weird customs that comedians have three to five minutes before they go on stage. Oh, yeah. I mean, they got to stand in circles, some got to run and take a crazy poop, and some got to pee, and some got to take three shots of Jack Daniels, or they can't go on stage. Right. And It's just a right, lot of craziness.
2: Right. Uh, I used to have a chant, and it was a short prayer, but I would always do it before I'd go on stage. And I'm not Catholic, but I would do the Catholic cross. I would just always, if I had a rabbit foot, I probably would have taken that, too. So... <laughs> And I noticed that, you know, all of that stuff is superstitious and garbage to be quite honest, because I've gone on stage and have not been able to do the little quick ritual and been fine. Right. Um, I I went to a show one time and they were pulling up, they got me from the airport late, the flights have been delayed, they picked me up from the airport, so they're rushing me there and they're telling me the show has already started. The show has been on for ninety minutes. So they put on every act, so they're rushing me to get there and uh, they get me there, and I hear the guy saying my name as I'm getting out of the car, because they're on the cell phone with me. It's like, okay, we're here. and It's like, all right, come to the stage. And it's like, I'm still back in the loading zone. <laughs> so there was no time for bathroom or anything like that, and I really had to go. But it was like, you just got to run on stage and do the job. And the funny thing is, and you can attest to this too, when you're when they call your name, and you know it's your time. I don't care if you got a cold. I don't care if you got the hiccups. I don't care really what's wrong. It all goes out the window.
1: It is an and
0: amazing as soon as you, feeling.
2: It's as, yes. as you get off the stage, it'll come back sometimes. Yeah. But when they say your name, and then it's like showtime, boom, uh, all of that stuff is gone. I've had yeah. the flu and not felt any ill effects on stage, got off, and then you're collapsed like Jordan.
1: Um, it's that, it's yeah. that adrenaline and the excitement yeah. and that little bit of love that you got for being on stage. It's a great thing. Uh, it's a great tool.
2: It, yeah. It's, you know, it's a great feeling um, when you're doing it right. Even when you're doing it wrong, you're learning something up there. Right. If you're smart and you, you know, let's go back to the book. Right? So you and I could tell comedy stories all day long and we will. <laughs> but
1: <laughs> like, I want to know in the book, uh, you know, uh, the comedians laugh, be a lady. You did the comedian, uh you did the interviews, but it just wasn't you. It was you and your wife no, I did that it.
2: No, I, I do want to point that out. I didn't do the interviews. Uh in my first book I did. I did all one twenty five. <laughs> in this one my wife did. Okay. Her name is uh Tuesday, her professional name is Lady Tuesday, and um she's a comedian and when she said let's write the book um I know I did a good job on the first book because I am a black comedian. So it's easy for me to tap into all that stuff and to have the right questions and, you know, know the landscape. Um, with this one, even though I'm in comedy, I'm not a female, and there's no way to fake that. And there's no way that women are going to tell a guy the same things they'll tell another woman. So I was very uh, adamant about her doing all the interviews. Um, all, so now, were you there for some
1: of the interviews, though, or was it just them? Were any of the interviews um, A lot live? of the
2: interviews, we live in Alabama, so a lot of the interviews, I would say geez, most of them, were done over the phone. That was the uh, maybe a distinct advantage I had in the first book because I was able to go to the laugh factory and comedy store and hang out and talk to comics face-to-face and so forth. But with this one, we did most of them over the phone, and uh, I don't think really anything was lacking because she would do the interview and then she would transcribe everything, and we had them all on tape. Um, anyway, and then I would be able to go back and listen if I had a question about anything, but no, she did most of what I would call the grunt work. Um, I did the research, which is not grunt work for me. I like, I like history. I like research because people um, look at history in a negative and I don't, and I haven't for a long time because I'm old. So, <laughs> stuff, <laughs> so stuff that was going on when I was a kid—it's like, oh man, this is really happening. This is going on right now. Well, that's history now. I lived through Watergate. So, you know, you mentioned Watergate. I—I I lived through the period where uh, there was black and white going on. Like, if you look at some of the old stuff, it's like, hey, I remember that. <laughs> you know, it might have been in color back then, but now they're showing it to you in black and white. Right. So.
1: And it's funny because yeah, it's, I start to I start to see that stuff now that I'm 40. I start to see all uh, those things from when I was like, you know, cuz you know, you remember a lot, but you kind of remember it, stuff as a man from 15 on and when you maybe started paying attention to the news and just the craziness right. that's happened in the last 25 years, it's been amazing, even in com- in comedy. Uh, you know, yeah. I've only been in it for 2 years, but I probably, and I'm going to go specifically at the lady comics. I mean, this is a fabulous book because I think it brings attention to an area that's lacking. I don't think that there's enough attention and there's uh, enough notoriety and fame for the ladies out there. I mean, there's some terrific female comics that just haven't, I don't know why they don't get the same attention, but I I believe it's an area that needs to be watched more carefully because there's some extremely funny women out there.
2: Well, what we found out, and we knew this going in to a degree, but we uh, fleshed fleshed out a lot more, was there's a distinct and it's almost an institutionalized prejudice against women in comedy. And men, be it their colleagues or the guys in the power that be, have tried to hold them down um, to the point of, uh, one woman told us a story where she was going actually just to do her job, and she had been booked, and the club owner was like, well, I didn't Tell the booker to send me a woman, and she said, well, I mean, uh, I'm good. I can do the job. And so the club owner called a, a local comic who was a very good comic, and you know, said, hey, man, they sent me a woman down here, and I don't really want no woman. I need you to come on down here and do the show. He said, well, what woman they sent? And he said, and I'll say your name. Her name is Jetta Jones. And for a lot of people who listen to Tom Joyner over the years, she's Miss Dupree. And so she's been around for ages. The woman is funny as hell. And so... The guy on the phone, the comedian, said, man, Jetta Jones, uh, dude, you ain't got no problem. She's going to be fine. She's going to destroy your room. I'm not coming down there and try to take her money. And so the, that was a noble comic. You know, a lot of guys would have said, okay, fine, I'm coming down. So he didn't go down, and uh, when the owner introduced her, now this is how degrading it can get for women sometimes, he said, anyway, y'all, they sent us a girl. I don't know what she's going to do, but, okay, here she is, Jetta Jones. And he put the mic on the floor.
0: Huh.
2: And so she describes it in the book where she had to go and pick up the mic, and she was mad as hell, and she destroyed the room. And ever since then, this guy has told the booker, bring her down here. He buys her jewelry, takes her out to dinner. He loves her. She says she's absolutely fantastic. Uh, But come on, man, nobody's ever done that to you. Nobody's ever done that to me. I don't think that uh, anybody's really done that to most male comedians out there. Where you're just gonna put the mic on the floor? How degraded! Um, another female had a story where she came out of the shower of a hotel room and there's the promoter sitting there on the couch talking about, hey, you want to go to the mall? I want to go to the movie. She's like, well, how'd you get in the room? Well, if you don't know, when promoters book comedians, they will book your hotel as well. They pay for it. They'll go down there with their credit card and they'll get the key. So when you get there, the key will be waiting for you. Or they'll, once they pick you up from the airport, they'll hand you your hotel room, and then boom, that's that. Well, they always offer you two keys. This guy just took one. And so now he's there in her room, and she's butt naked. Oh, man. It doesn't happen to do. You see what I'm saying? That kind of stuff doesn't happen to guys. And this has been going on. You know, I'm not just talking about modern-day stuff in the book. It chronicles the fact that this has been going on from jump. Uh, the funny thing is, it started... Um, female comedy actually started in the convent. It started with nuns. There was a nun named Horsh Vita in Germany, and um, she was known as the Nun of Ganderstein, and she started writing comedies, and they were able to perform it in a church environment to the uh, bishops and the archbishops and so on and so forth. Uh, that's where female comedy started, and it was like that. In, uh, and then it went professionally, I believe, in the 1500s. Um, to the state of the church for centuries. And then professionally started in Spain and spread across Europe. And Germany was actually one of the last ones to get it in a secular way. And then it came over here to the States in the 1800s. And um, at that time, it started with, uh, I think it was uh, 1870. It was a female minstrel group, and they were minstrels. Uh, back then, that's how it started, and you know we all know minstrels were black and white, so everybody's running around in blackface. But then the women started removing the blackface, and they called them girly shows, and so they were a big deal going around the country. And the first female comedian's name was May Irwin, recognized as the first female comedian. She was in a Thomas Edison movie called The Kiss, and that's the first kiss that was ever filmed uh, in a movie. Um, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, had her do a command performance for President Woodrow Wilson, and he called her, he dubbed her the Secretary of Laughter. (laughs) So women kind of came in the door with a little bit more respect than they've gotten over the years. Somebody pointed this out to me. The movie Mad, 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 Mad World, I'm sure your audience is familiar with it, 1963 classic, everybody's in it. Uh, every male comedian you could think of is in that movie. Milton Berle, uh, Mickey Rooney, Jerry Lewis has got a cameo. You've got Jonathan Winters in it, Buddy Hackett. and uh, Sid Caesar. It's full of the principal players. And then you've got uh, um, guys who do cameos in the movie throughout, like the Three Stooges. But there's no female. There's not a single comedian in that movie. They have two women in it. And one is an actress, Dorothy Provine, and the other is a singer, which is Ethel Merman. They're not comedians. either one of them. Right. So this is 1963. You're telling me there was no women they could have put in that flick? Come on.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's weird. And I think in the beginning they were definitely held down, you're right. But there's a lot coming to them today, and a lot of the great comedians like uh, or comedians uh, like Lucille Ball uh, really started a whole role in Joan Rivers, and I mean, there's so many now, people.
2: I'm glad you mentioned Lucy. Uh, and we, we talk about this in the book. And I do want to get my wife on to talk to you, too, because Absolutely. she knows a lot. Okay, great. Well, do we have a commercial break, or we just segue into it? I can just call her.
1: We could segue in, we could do a commercial. I'd be happy okay. to give her her own show, whatever you want.
2: Okay, well, that would be great. You know, she's, got her whole thing <laughs> she's on my show. She's on my show right now and she's really getting to to hog the mic. Um, <laughs> but uh no, the women have the way we broke the book down, we do it in sections because to try to do it linear see, with male comedy you can trace it. Um, you can say this guy handed off to this guy, or this guy's a disciple of that guy. And Jerry Seinfeld even pointed out, like Lenny Bruce, George Carlin came from Lenny Bruce, and then you had guys that came from Carlin. Um, well, and then you had guys that came from Ward Saul, so you could see where the handoff came, or the influence came from. Right. But with comedians, it's not as it's not as prevalent. It's not like
1: didn't there's have as a many people of to connection. look up to. That long list of people to look up to wasn't there.
2: Well, you can't say Whoopi Goldberg is like Mom's maybe, or she's like LaWanda Page or she's like anybody. She's Whoopi Goldberg. And you can't really say there's anybody that's come along that's like Whoopi Goldberg. No more than you can say anybody that's come along who's really like Lily Tomlin.
1: Right, very true.
2: And and where did Lily Tomlin come from? Was there anybody uh, like Tina Fey before there was a Tina Fey? Uh, But the thing about Lucy is, and Lucy herself said this: um, She wasn't a comedian; she was a comedy. She was an actress who could do comedy. That's what
1: I was going to say. She started off
2: as a, a chorus girl, and you know, she did dramas. Uh, she did thrillers. Um, she did slapstick movies and stuff with Red Skelton. But <laughs> that was not all she did. She was a pinup girl at one point.
1: She was. She was a very beautiful woman. And I was going to ask you that. I was gonna ask you exactly how she made it into the book because I had never actually seen or heard of her doing stand up comedy, but she was such a funny woman and played so many funny parts and did she do a lot of the writing, like when you go right to the I Love Lucy show or the Lucille Ball show. How much did do you know how much she had in the writing aspect of that show? Is that where her humor shined?
2: Well, she was more characterization that actual writing. Um, when she did table read, she was terrible. So she was not a natural comedian where you could just read something and make it funny. They said she was like the worst actress in the world when they did the table reads. Come back the next day after she had the script, uh, fully fleshed out character, she's Lucy, and she's ripping a hole in the wall. So she was a very accomplished actress, and she said that herself, um, that she's not really a comedian. The reason she made it in the book and this goes back to the problem, the way the structure was for comedians back then. Um, with guys, male comedy started in 1921, um, if you're looking at stand-up, and that was Will Rogers. He's the first recognized, um, I guess you would say, comedian um, of any race. And then the first black comedian actually is 1961, stand-up, and that would be considered Dick Gregory. That's because he's the first one who could go up and just stand and tell jokes without having to sing and dance and do some other nonsense along with
1: it. Now, Dick Gregory is actually, isn't he? Now, he is still doing comedy, if I'm correct.
2: He turned 80, I think, either today or yesterday. Dick turned 80.
1: Uh, A mutual friend of ours is going to be doing a a show with him. It's either this week or next week. Uh, L.A. Hardy is going to get to open up for him this week Uh, or next week.
2: I mean, that's a great honor. I Uh, I would tell L.A. Hardy, and I hope he's listening, talk to Dick Gregory as much as you can. Um, He'll tell you stuff. When when he did my first book, he interviewed me uh, for 90 minutes. I was at the airport, and he called me, and I didn't know he was calling me at the time. I was trying to get in touch with him, and I went through Daryl Mooney, Paul Mooney's son. And so he just called me out of the blue, and he said, yeah, this is Dick Gregory. And he's like, you don't tell Dick Gregory, hey, I'm busy.
0: I you got to
2: do. So he goes ahead and he says, yeah, I understand you're trying to write a book on black comedians. He wanted me to, uh, my input. Uh, let me ask you a few questions and a few questions turned into 90 minutes. He completely picked my brain. And then at the end of the 90 minutes, he said, okay, I'll go ahead and do the interview. You ready? And I said, <laughs> well, uh, no, I'm at the airport and I don't have my recording equipment and you know, any of that. Can I call you next week? So, and then we did a 90 minute interview after that. And, uh, A lot of stuff was off record. The dude is so amazing because he was back in the civil rights movement, and so there's so much interesting stuff he can tell you. But you can trace a line with Dick Gregory. You can say, okay, when Dick Gregory moved out of the way and became an activist more than a comedian, then all of a sudden that's when Bill Cosby stepped in. Richard Pryor stepped in after that because he was a Cosby clone, Cosby got iSpy, spy, uh, so they needed the new stand-up, and that was Richard Pryor. Well, so when Richard Pryor got in this drug situation, you can say Eddie Murphy. Uh, Eddie Murphy started doing no more movies, you need the stand-up. Well, Eddie Murphy's protege was Chris Rock. Chris Rock gets involved in movies and doing a lot of other stuff, he's not doing as much stand-up, he's hitting specials here and there, but you need a new guy, they always need a new guy, fact, Dave Chappelle. Uh, Dave Chappelle goes ahead; he does two seasons. They were phenomenal. Third season dumped out. Goes to Africa. You need a new guy. Cat Williams standing right there in line. Cat goes from his little, you know, wild binge or whatever. Um, he became Little Caesar and Napoleon all rolled up into one. You need a new guy, Kevin Hart. So you can trace that. And like I said, you can't trace it with women. And the problem was that we found early on. They weren't doing stand up until I think Phyllis Diller is like the first recognized female stand up. It's either her or Moms Mably. And actually, in the, in the book, actually, Moms Mably does predate Phyllis Diller. Phyllis started doing it in the 50s, and uh, Moms was doing it really in the late 30s and the 40s. So, Moms Mably is the first um, comedian period, and Phyllis Diller is the one that took it mainstream because Moms Mably never got. Any breaks. Um, right. She had to do clubs throughout her career, and yeah, she was making a lot of money doing recordings. She made a lot of money at the Apollo Theater, but she never got a TV show. Uh, the movies that she got were either in the 30s, which were mainly black films uh, because they had black cinema, or the movie she did in 1974, Amazing Grace. Uh, she was doing The Smothers Brothers. She did all kinds of things, and she wrote all kinds of stuff. And her legacy is definitely there. But to most people, realistically, Moms Mabley is a reference right. as opposed to, and you know what she looks like, and you know what she sounds like, but uh, I'd love somebody to call in and give us some Moms Mabley material.
0: Yeah. Where you
2: can do that with other people on the cover. Um, Rosie O'Donnell, Roseanne, um, like I said, Gracie Allen, Toadie Fields, uh, we've got Mary Tyler uh, Carol Burnett. See... Here's the deal, because they weren't really doing stand-up in the traditional way we looked at it, we knew we had to expand, otherwise we would have only been talking about uh, maybe 12 or 20 women, period. Um, their stand-up didn't really develop until like the late 60s, early 70s, where you started seeing women really get into it, and at that point, you ignore a whole wealth of women who were funny. So the term comedians was different than the male situation.
1: And I thought it was interesting because you don't have a lot of people. I mean, now I think nowadays everybody is just a comedian. I mean, if you go up to some of the greatest female comics that are out there now, you know, Wendy Liebman or whoever. I, I don't know if they do they still. I don't think there's a, a distinction. I think everybody's just a comedian now. I don't know if they still separate the two.
2: Well, Tina Fey is not a stand-up, and she'll admit that. She says she's great at improv. Um, You have to qualify Mae West as a comedian, uh, but she wasn't a stand-up. But she was a vaudeville entertainer. So we had to deal with those aspects of stage. Same thing with Gracie Allen. She was a stage performer, but she was not a stand-up in the traditional sense. Back in vaudeville, stand-up was different. You usually did it with a partner. And so it was a trading back and forth of jokes and gags and all that. But not, not stand up in the tradition that we know today where you're standing there and you're delivering, nowadays you're delivering more personalized material or your viewpoint of the world. Back then it was jokes. And anybody could do, this, anybody could do a joke. They, don't, they didn't have the same ownership that we have now because a lot of them didn't write their own material. A joke was a joke was a joke. Uh, this woman's going to deliver it different than this wh- This other woman. Um, so they got broken into a, a whole different category because it was so spread out. And like I said, the first female really was Moms Mabel, but predating her, you did have other women uh, that predated Moms Mabel. One of them, there was a group called Butterbeans Beans and Susie. They introduced... Uh, Moms maybe to the public and the, the business world, period. And they were a group that uh, performed in Harlem and all over the country and so forth. They had a song out called, I Want a Hot Dog for My Roll. And it was, <laughs> <laughs> because it were a husband and wife team. And it was, you know, actually, it, it is what it sounds like. It's a very sexually charged song, but this is from the 20s. So you know, I want a hot dog for my role, I want it long and lean, I want a thick hot dog, so <laughs> they were coming from that angle, from a hot bun, and <laughs> uh, and they introduced mom slavery. so yeah, they were people that predated even the big names, and that was one of the things that we wanted to do in this book, too, um, was talk to not just big name comedians, we wanted to talk to comedians who are actually working uh, nowadays, because one thing I noticed and kind of learned a lesson on from the first book is the bigger they were as far as status, sometimes you didn't get a lot out of them versus some of the best quotes came from working comedians who had notoriety but really weren't gigantic. Because sometimes the gigantic kind of isolate themselves or forget what it was really like. And we wanted, like, the real deal. We have a segment in here where women talk about being on the road and uh, like that story I told you about the girl with the shower and all that, that kind of stuff. Right. So, yeah, so we get it from the working woman, uh, the working comedian's point of view as well as main comedian. We talked, to, um, we talked to Nora Dunn and found out a lot about Saturday Night Live. And I wanted to talk, I didn't wanted to talk to Nora Dunn ever since the um, Saturday Night Live incident. And that was ages ago. But she's a woman I've always wanted to talk to because to me that took a lot of principle to do that.
0: Now, did um, she... Andrew Dice
2: Clay was coming on Saturday Night Live and Sinead O'Connor was a musical guest and they both refused to go on because they considered Andrew Dice Clay a misogynist and um, racist and everything else and they looked at him as being vile and Laura Dunn didn't think he was funny. She said out of all that, he wasn't funny. <laughs> <laughs> I had to accept the rest of it, but he wasn't funny to her. So, and So you got to talk about
1: princes- that in the book and you get to expand on that?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's in the book. Um, like I said, we talked to a lot of women and got, at the end of the book, in the uh, appendix, it was just a matter of, we we interviewed a lot of them, dozens of women, but then they all kind of give, we asked a lot of questions, and I couldn't really weave them in the book uh, because they would have really been out of place, the way the book is uh, set up because we've got chapters where you're talking about the women of Saturday Night Live or the women of laugh or the Queen's Comedy, the Latin Divas of Comedy, and, you know, the women from the 50s, the women who did recordings, and this, that, and the other. So to try to weave some of the questions that we had um, would have been disruptive. So we just put it at the back of the book, like, what advice for you, you have for anybody following in the footsteps? Or, um, do you feel you represent more yourself when you perform or your race or your gender? Um You know, you can't really weave those in. And what message do you want people to get from your comedy? Do you feel you made any sacrifice? Uh, That was one of my favorite questions. Do you feel you've ever made a sacrifice doing stand-up? Marilyn, uh, excuse me, um, not Marilyn. Um, I was going to say Marilyn Martinez. Uh, Monique Marvez uh, said no, she never made any sacrifice. She said most people uh, (laughs) feel they've sacrificed something when they are not at home for the holidays. She said... She makes sure that she's booked somewhere for the holidays because she don't want to be there. <laughs> so,
1: she, you know, she wants to be out making people happy for the holidays, or just avoiding right. that miserable life at home. But we'll leave that for the book.
2: Well, yeah, I kind of took it as she doesn't want to be around the family during the holidays because so, you know some people's family get trippy during the holidays, and so we do have the option of the good part about being a comedian, male or female, is you do have the option of being where you want to be. Uh, when you want to be there, you can always say, I got a gig. Right. Um, you know, uh, I asked him about vacationing and he said, every time I want to go, uh, a place I want to vacation, I just book it as a gig.
1: Yeah. I, I've yeah, used so. gigs to get in and out of, uh, sexual relations. <laughs> I'd be like, sorry, baby, I can't come over. I got a gig tonight.
2: I, I got to get. It. I got to be there. Yeah, I gotta There's go. I, do it.
1: I got a meeting at the station. I know my show's on on Monday and it's Friday, but hey, gotta go. <laughs> so it's nice to have that uh, little escape. Not not that the ladies would use it in that way, but
2: the guys right.
1: do. Live up to our right. Dog but I nature. think
2: um, I believe every comedian, period, or every person should read this book. Of course, I do. I wrote it. But <laughs> beyond, beyond beyond that. Uh, I think every female, if nothing else, because I know it's hard to make a guy read anything about women, Uh, because I was a little little reluctant to even get involved in it myself at first because I didn't think I really had the chops to do it in the sense of, if I didn't have my wife writing it with me, then there's no way I would have tackled this book. Um, There's certain things I know I can write about and really bring them off the page, and they're really really good work and all that. And then there's other things that's like, hmm... I don't know enough about it. By the time I learned enough about it, I might not even be interested in doing it. It's really got to fire me up. And then when she said she would do it uh, with me, then it was like, okay, then great. Then I really feel good about it because then I'm not going to miss any of the language. I'm not going to miss any of the layers or the texture that these women should get. It's not, it's, in other words, it's not going to be a book about women that sound like it was written by a guy.
1: Exactly. It'll, it'll, it'll have be about women and it'll have the influence of women.
2: Or of a, of a Yeah, woman. because she got her. She got these women to tell her stuff that they would have never told me. One woman told her she uh she had a miscarriage while she was on stage. Oh, no woman's gonna tell me that.
1: Absolutely not.
2: Yeah. What so, other crazy stories did you hear about? Of, you get the history because, like I say, you get all the women tracing all the way back. You get their bios and their backstories. Um the fact that Hattie McDaniel had four husbands and two of them used to beat her because they were jealous of kill She was Hattie McDaniel. Um, you get the fact that Mae West was half black and she was a bigamist. Um, you get the dirt in there or what I would call the life in there, but you also get the accomplishments too. So it's not like we're just trying to say, oh, all these chicks were into stuff. Uh, no, they weren't. Um, you get to find out who were the disadvantaged, like Boston, they may have been raped, uh, twice uh, once by the town sheriff and that's why she had to leave and be sent to stay with the minister and his family and that's how she got into performance she got into a talent show and uh... from that talent show she won because she could see what the angle was on how to win she won the talent show and she packed up her stuff and went on uh... with a minstrel show and just toured across the country because She had had two illegitimate kids, and they had been taken from her by midwives and given to other families just as in the sense of foster care. So comedy was cathartic for her, and I know I just mispronounced that on radio. You guys are going to be able to tell. But um, comedy is what she really needed in her life to give her life purpose because her brother was trying to tell her to be a whore because that was one of the options available to women back then who did not have skills. And how many women back then had skills in the 1910s and 20s?
1: Yeah, it was a totally different world. I mean, it was women were homemakers. And if you, you know, it's hard to say, you know, for not hard to say, but women didn't step out of what was considered the proverbial line at the time. They were just Susie homemakers and they catered to the man and. It's a far cry. Uh, Comedian or not, try to get a woman to stay home and cater to you. It's uh, That's going to yeah. be an impossible option.
2: And that's if that woman had a man. Right. Okay. We have to take, you know, we're, we're looking at it 100 years ago, 80 years ago, from the standpoint of neither one of us having been there. So it's easy for us to say, oh, well, every woman that wanted a man had a man. Every woman wants a man now can't get a man.
0: Yeah, every so guy that wants a woman it, can't get it, a man. You
2: know, it might have. It might have been easier back then, but then again, probably not. Uh, everything was more spread out. Uh, you were in communities that were more isolated than they are now. They weren't connected by freeways and everything. Traveling was not the way it is now at all. So if you're in an area that's got maybe a 1,000 people, um, you're picking, or hundreds of people, you're picking this kind of slim. Right. So when we look at some of these old black and white pictures and these guys are standing there with chicks who look like guys, that was the best available in your area. <laughs> you, you didn't have the pinup girls. You didn't have sex lines or anything like that. You didn't have clubs. Um, you had saloons and bars, and those chicks looked hard, too, and those were good time girls. They weren't the kind of women you were marrying, and... So the women back then were very plain. They didn't have exercise regimens. They didn't have the kind of, you know, care that they have. Now, come on, pedicures, manicures, uh, skin softener, hair care. Are you kidding me?
0: That like just didn't was exist.
2: <laughs> so I want to get my wife on the phone, though, because I don't want to run out of time and I'm doing all the talking. All right. Is, she right.
1: is she right there with you, or do we got to re- reach out to her?
2: Uh, I can call her. It'll take me half a second. Yeah, go ahead, call her. Okay, all right. Let me take this out Have a second.
1: All right. Why well, he's reaching out to Tuesday. I am gonna reach out and say hello to Toby. Toby who is my number one fan. I went to Fort Lauderdale this weekend and I did Toby's birthday party. Uh it was okay. great.
2: Oh, all right, it took two seconds. It okay. took two seconds. So far- yeah, she was in the she was in the West Wing. All right. Well, <laughs> get her. To, well hold I on one second my I, Chauncey to bring her over here in the cart.
1: I, I'm uh, gonna say <laughs> Real real quick, I'm just going to finish one thing to Toby that I went down and I did her 70th birthday party in Fort Lauderdale. I had a great time. I appreciate that she's my number one fan and always listens to the show. So I should have said it in the beginning, but so I I might start saying, welcome to the Let's Be Frank show and good morning, Toby, because she always listens at 4 a.m. in the morning because it's too late for her to stay up.
2: Oh, wow. That is very cool.
1: So that might have to be the new intro. Welcome to the Let's Be Frank Show. Good morning, Toby. <laughs> and if you want your name listed on the show, start joining the Let's Be Frank Show group on Facebook, and we'll see what we can do to get you on the show. So bring in Tuesday.
2: Here she is, Lady Tuesday. Hey, Frank.
1: How you doing, Lady Tuesday?
2: Hi, how you doing?
1: I am doing good. Thank you for taking some time out to come on the show.
3: Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. Oh. I appreciate
1: it. That's the reason I started talking to Darrow is to get to you. He thinks it's a plot. But I mean, he just he oh. thinks I want uh, it's all about the women for me. I'm a single guy. Oh. <laughs> so
3: All right. Thank you, <laughs> That's good. Well, you know, um I have a book uh mostly about a bunch of single women.
1: <laughs> there you go. And we we were just talking about that and I wanted to ask you a question. You interviewed all of these ladies. Uh-huh. Which was the most, I mean, they were all interesting, but was there one that stood out mainly to you, one that had a, you know, a more, a deeper uh, feeling or drew anything out in you more so?
3: Um, You know what? I, I would have to say, yeah. Um, one particular um, comedian, her name is Jetta Jones. Okay. She... She and I ended up, you know, becoming friends after it because it was just such a deep and wonderful interview. Um, but her story was, was very unique because she she had an opportunity. She was given an opportunity to um, be in a movie. She was supposed to be an unknown actress in a movie, and that's what they wanted. Uh, she had gotten all the way down through the process of the, the read and the audition, and, and she was everything that the writers and the producers wanted when they wrote the movie. Um, that movie was Ghost. Wow. And, and um, it, I mean, she went through the whole process and everything, and she was... Uh, you know, it was like a Friday. She was going to get the contract on that Monday. And, you know, so she's, the whole weekend, she's, you know, on cloud nine. Oh yeah. And, and, you know, instead of getting the paperwork, she gets a phone call and, and they said, hey, um, we're sorry to have to do this, but uh, Whoopi Goldberg wants the role. And we're going to go with her. Wow. Now. So, and I mean, you know, you could hear the crackling in her voice and she's telling the story and
2: it's like, oh, no. Oh, of
1: course. You know, this, I mean, that's, that would have been what put her on the map. I mean, I mean, she's known, but I mean, that was such a huge opportunity for her.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And see, then it, then it leaves the, the question, uh, would she have gotten an Oscar? Right. You know? So I mean and and then you have to kinda of live with like, oh man, would I have been on the view? I mean, you don't know if that was Jetta's past or that was just truly Whoopi's past. You now, know what I mean? So
1: who did you interview um, first? Jetta or Whoopi? Huh? Who did you interview first? Jetta or Whoopi?
3: I didn't I didn't interview I didn't interview Whoopi. I didn't have a chance to interview Whoopi. Um so I got this this, you know, one sided story that um and I mean I reached out to Whoopi and you know, um I wanted an opportunity to interview them both.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would have loved to hear Whoopi's side of that on the whole the whole issue there.
3: Right, right, and that's that's what I wanted, to. I mean, you know what I'm saying? You want to be fair, and you want to give everybody an opportunity to say their piece, their side, but um it didn't exactly work out like that. However, um Jetta laid the story out so good, it's, you know, even Whoopi felt bad about Jetta not getting the role. She even made sure later on that she put her on a a one of her specials, you know, that she brought her out as, like, her protege. She was really trying to give her some, uh, you know.
1: Some exposure. Help make up for that. Yeah. Kind of put, you know, help her get out there. She, You don't want to say she took her limelight. She took what could have been her limelight, and when she found out, she said, well, let me me give back a little bit, because that movie did a lot of great things for Whoopi.
3: Right. Right. And that's what I'm saying. It's like, okay, she's still Whoopi Goldberg. And I, and, and, you know, I, I can't ever take anything from her to say, Hey, well, I would have had a have got the Oscar too. It, it's all, you know what I'm saying? It, it comes down to your acting chops. It comes down to your exposure. It comes down to who you are. You know, I mean, Whoopi had been in the game a long time at this point. So they already knew her. She wasn't an unknown actress, even though that's, initially what they wanted was an unknown somebody that they could just use for this particular role and I mean because we already know who the stars of the movie were Mm -hmm. you know they already knew who they wanted as the stars and they just wanted an unknown uh, actress well I mean it's still like I said that question is lingering like okay so would Jetta have won the Oscar what would have been Jetta's life. Absolutely. You know, so Jetta had to go back out on the road, you know, and, and she had been on the high this whole time, though. You know, she was getting work here. She was getting work there. She was writing for people. She was, you know, she was busy. She was hopping around. And then this just bust her bubble. And, you know, she dropped her head and, and just went back out on the road and, and was still doing road work.
1: Well, at least she did that because a lot of people could take a, a cut down like that and you know just let it take over and destroy a career because there was so oh, much yeah. that could have been counting on it so it, it goes to the strengths that she had in herself and believing in herself
3: definitely definitely she you know she was a strong woman she um she took it in stride i mean you know it hurt it, it probably caved in her chest a little bit but she wasn't going to, you know, kick the chair off from under and, you know, let her body hang. She wasn't going to do that. Right. She, you know, she had other stuff. And she feels, Jetta, feels like this is a gift. This is, you know, she's honored to be able to make people laugh. If it's one person, 12 people, whatever the the, the number. Um and most of the, the the attitude from the comedians, that's what it is. It's a gift. It's the, I'm, I'm blessed with a special gift. And the ability to, to, to share this with the world, um, it doesn't matter. If I'm on the big screen, if I'm on the small stage, if I'm on, you know what I mean?
1: Uh, yeah, when you do comedy, as long as you get to be out there in front of people and making people laugh, you get that that buzz or that high that you need from the moment or you get that release of stress, whatever it is to, you know, cause comedy to everybody that gets on the stage, I think is a little bit different and it's always interesting because I'm not myself. I'm not worried about becoming a big famous or even touring comedian. It may be more of a hobby that I'll always get on stage and I'll always have fun. And it's something that gives me the confidence to do other things in my life. So it's, it's a great tool for me. But there are others that, you know, if they couldn't get on stage, I think they would feel sick. You hear people all the time, after, oh, I haven't been on stage in a week, i got to find a mic, I've got to get on stage, I don't feel myself, I haven't got to entertain anybody. So there's some true addictions in there.
3: Oh, oh definitely. I mean, I a bunch of the women were saying, it's a drug, it's a drug, I'm addicted. I, you know, I, 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 I'm high before I go on stage, and once I come off, I mean, the adrenaline, I, you know, I'm even higher. You know, I mean, I had one comedian. Her name is uh, Monique Marvez. She says, I don't do drugs, I don't drink, because her world is like that. She said people get high and get drunk to visit the world that she lives in. Absolutely. So you have to know you, and you have to know your reason for taking this stage. So that at all times you're comfortable up there, you know if it's a, if it's it's if it's for you to go up there and vent and 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 have a therapeutic moment, then so be it Absolutely. you know if you're up there to to spread information and and be enlightening and and be you know motivating for people, then by all means, take the stage. You know, but if you're up there and you're just kind of farting around and, you know, you you really haven't honed in on your your craft and you're really not um, working your stuff out and you're not up there being original, then what was the point?
1: Exactly. You know, I may not be the hardcore guy, but I definitely try to do everything original. Um, You know, I try to put all the effort in. Sometimes I think I get a little bit more joy and pleasure out of doing the show here, and you know, I, like she says that high when she gets off a of stage. I get home and there, there's just no way I'm going to sleep. I end the show like we'll be done in about right. ten minutes, and I'm just gonna be on a buzz for another hour, right. hour and a half, <laughs> and I'm just like, what am I gonna do? I go home and I wind up listening to the show and I critique it. I'm like, well, let me see what could I have done better. What what did uh-huh. I do different? Where did I talk too much or where did I not talk enough?
3: Right. No, I mean, that, that's the, the perfectionism in, in us all that, you know, no, it doesn't matter. If you're doing stand-up, anything that involves giving yourself to people, you want to make sure you're doing that the best. You're, you want to make sure you're giving them exactly what they need. You know what I mean? Whatever it is. But you want to make sure you're giving that to them. The laugh, the information, the, you know, forget about your problems. Hey, I bet my problems are worse than yours. You know what I'm saying? Because to me, that's the attitude that comedians take. When they take the stage, it's like, I can guarantee you my problems are worse than all of yours in this room. But the difference is. I can take mine and make you laugh about it. And we can all sit in here and laugh about my problems.
1: Tuesday, I want to I ask you two questions, and I'm going to ask you both and you just answer them. Uh, first, I want to find out what brought you to stand-up comedy and what brought you to want to write this book. Because I know you, you wrote the book with Daryl, but it wasn't an avenue that he might have gone down. So he said he did it because he had you to work with him. So, what brought you to comedy? What made you to start? You know, decide to start it, and then why this
3: book? Uh, you know what brought me to comedy. This um, I used to hang with comedians. Okay, uh, I didn't do comedy. I wasn't writing comedy. I, nothing. You know, I was a worker. I was doing something else, nine to five, and I used to just hang with comedians, and all of them would. In the middle of a conversation, hey, are you going to use, oh, no, you don't do comedy. Can I use that? Do you, do you, you don't mind if I use that, right? And pulling out napkins and papers and, you know, writing the stuff down that I was saying. And I would see, I would watch Comic View or I would watch wow. Deaf Comedy Jam and I would see them doing the material on TV. Wow. And... I'm sitting there going, "Okay, wait a minute. This is the conversation that we had. I remember this conversation, and I could. I it was driving me crazy to the point where I went to go see one of my friends perform, and he's doing his show, and he's the host of the show, and. He's opening up the show, and he says, you know, I want to bring this this person up to the stage. You know, you're going to love her, and this and that. And I'm looking around like, oh, wow, who's here, you know? And so it's this whole big buildup, and he brought me on stage.
1: So you weren't even expecting it.
3: I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't ready for it. I was just... I, was, I mean, it took me forever to get to the stage because I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. What? Is he serious? What, huh? You know, and I'm talking to myself the whole time. I'm walking up to the stage like, what am I doing? Why am I even doing this? <laughs> and the first thing that I said out of my mouth, I got a laugh, and then I just kind of riffed from there. I did about five, seven minutes. And it I had a great response to it and after that he just said, See, I've been telling you for years, you can do comedy. There you go. And I mean I couldn't I couldn't stop after that.
1: You got you found your drug
3: now. Huh?
1: Yeah, I said you found your drug.
3: You know, I got bit by the comedy bug. That seven so, minute high has know, lasted
1: you a lifetime so far.
3: Huh?
1: I said you got the a lifetime high from that seven minute buzz.
3: Exactly. How do, Why does that happen? Why does that have to be? That was my question. Like, <laughs> I was doing okay in my life. I don't. I didn't want to be nervous every day before a show or feel the feeling that you get. Like, oh my god, I have to go over my jokes. I have to study. I have to look in the mirror. I have to, you know. And I just feel like, hey, you know what, um, I got the call, I didn't run from it, and I just went on and just, you know, accepted it to the plate, and I felt really good, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but what I can say is, had I bombed, I would have never taken the stage again, and I would have never, <laughs> ever wrote the book.
1: So now, what brought you to the book?
3: <laughs> right. Right into the book. Um The reason the book had to be is because I didn't feel like women were ever fairly represented in comedy. Um, Makes sense. I I never felt like women really were seen as attaining the big golden comedy microphone. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You you see Seinfeld and you see Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor and you look at the careers of those guys and you say, "Well, you know, we've had women too." We you know <laughs> what I mean? You kind of get defensive like, "Wait a minute. Okay, pull out your biggest guy and let me pull out my biggest girl." And you there know, are a lot and, of, a
1: lot of huge women comedian out there.
3: You know, But see, the thing is, when I pull out my biggest girl, I sat back and I go, "What? Well, that's Lucy. Lucy O'Ball is my biggest girl, and she's not even stand-up.
1: That's a very, very, very true.
3: You know, and so I'm going, oh, my gosh, wait a minute. I have to put this. I need to put these girls in an in order. Or, you know, I need to gather all my girls up in one place and just kind of sort it through because I wanted to be able to say, well, you know what? These are all the comedians. These are all the women. These are all the girls who represent well in comedy. For some reason, these women are are forgotten or they're not held to the, to the, to the highest like the guys. So I'm telling my husband, I said, well, you know what D I want to write a book about female in comedy. I want to, let people know who the first um, comedian was. I want to talk about all of the comedians throughout history, and I call it her story because it's <laughs> all females. Um, but I wanted to show the torch being passed. Instead of women saying, um, I started comedy because of Red Fox or Richard Pryor or you know um, like I said Don Rickles or Jerry Seinfeld or whatever. No, these are the women who are the pioneers. These are the women who pass the torch down to you. I wanted to be able to give comedians their own history book, something that they can say, okay, let me let me trace my roots. Let me find out who I'm a direct descendant of, uh, a disciple of. Right. And I didn't feel that existed. And it didn't exist for African-American women on this level, Latinas, Asians. I didn't feel like just everybody was being represented. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to bring everybody together in one book And say, okay, ladies, here's us. Here we are. We're here. And know that and be ready to defend this. This is your Bible now. You have something that says women have done comedy, they've been successful, and they've made marks.
1: And a hell hell of a mark they've made tell everybody exactly, where they can know? go find the book cuz we got a couple of minutes left so let's make sure we plug where they can go buy the book
3: you can buy the book at amazon.com barnes and noble um you can order it anywhere <laughs> that carry fine books everyone should have something sensational to read this book is so awesome and not just because myself and my husband wrote it but because we are lovers of comedy. So the interviews, these women, they didn't, I mean, can you expect a comedian to hold their tongue? These women were so unfiltered. They were so raw and so real. And it's actually so hilarious because there's so many road stories and there's so many um just different stories in in their careers. You know, you're you doing comedy for six months. You're doing comedy for six years, and everything in between. It just tells you everything that these women have gone through in order to make people laugh.
1: And that's a wonderful thing, making people laugh and knowing the history as a, you know as a female comedian. Some of the girls that I see at open mics and doing shows now. Uh, You know, I've had fabulous interviews with plenty of lady comedians from April Macy to yourself. And, you know, it's the fact that all these guys, all these ladies uh, paved the way, you know what I mean? They went out there and they did things that nobody else was doing, nobody thought they could do. And, you know, they went out there and hit home runs and showed everybody, you know, a, a new path and a whole new territory that women were able to get into and excel at.
3: Right. Right. I mean, I, I, I. When I did the interviews, like I said, I, I talked to a lot of the women, and I asked them, you know, who, who inspired you? Who, who did you see that showed you you could do this too? You know, um, I got a lot of uh, Phyllis Diller and uh, Lily Tomlin and Carol Burnett. Um. I got a lot of, you know, Whoopi Goldberg and Marsha Warfield. These are women who when they saw them, they sat back and said, Wow. that's a that's a girl. Yep. You know, it it's, it's that's a girl, I can do that then.
1: You know, it's funny you know? we we talk about that and I have a there's a girl here in uh like Port Ritchie or you know about 45 minutes from where I am in Florida and she is around I think she's about seven years old and she's already going to she's been in a couple of open mics in New York City she's been at a couple of open mics here in New, in Florida and although her jokes you know you could tell that they're age appropriate she's on stage and she jokes about now this is a callback, and I mean her her mother is letting her go through and do these things and it's somebody that I'm actually may let come on to the show at such a young age just because I'm amazed at the fact that she's out there. She's determined. She's like, I love comedy. I want to do comedy. And I want to pick this little girl's brain to find out, you know, where did she come up with it? Who did she see or what made her decide? I mean, for even a, a, a boy for, to come up with it at such a young age, but to be at that six or seven years old and being comfortable being on stage with people is, is amazing to me.
3: Yeah, see I know a I know a um a male comic he he takes his daughter. They have like a a routine that they do. Um and I I, I know she's at least 10. And they've been they've been doing comedy for a few years together. That's so great. I don't know exactly when she started, but she's been doing and they they almost have like a it's almost like a ventriloquist act. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that kind of playing off of each other back and forth. But, I mean, it is one of the funniest
2: shows to
1: see. Well, you know, I have Daryl, and I think I might have you on my Facebook. And what I'll do is I'll send you, within the next day or so, I'll send you a little clip of this little girl doing comedy. And, again, you know, it's age appropriate, and you can tell the difference but it's very funny and you know if she sticks with it i think it'll be an amazing story to watch her progress from such a young age
3: right no I, i mean i would love to just tell her keep doing it keep doing it applaud mom and let mom know hey this is a marathon so Make sure you understand that. It's a marathon. You're in it for the long haul. This is not, you know, fly-by-night type of thing.
1: And I had a little conversation with her mother, and she's actually looking for some comedy mentors and people that she can talk to. So, you know, maybe maybe if I get her to come in and we do the show, maybe I'll have someone like yourself call in and you could share some of the experiences with other comedians or or comedians. I'm sorry that I I keep going back to say comedians. but. (laughs) With other comedians, and give her, you know, it, it would be a little cool thing to have you and her on the show, and it'll give us another time to maybe highlight you a little bit in some of your comedy, because Daryl hogged up the first forty minutes or so, because you know us guys, we yeah, like to take all the time for ourselves. Yeah,
3: but you know what? That would be awesome. I would, I would love that. Like I said, I'm in awe that you know, at such a young age, and she's in single digits. I mean, yeah. You know, I was performing at a young age, but I wasn't doing stand up and I wasn't I wasn't just a solo act. I was, you know, I was dancing and I was with a group. But and you know, we just performed as a group. So I didn't really stand out as an individual or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I still at that age didn't know comedy was something that I would end up doing or even wanted to do. Right. You know, I had to be an adult and fully embrace the whole idea before I could even take the stage.
1: Yeah, so, I never... I I'm never, in awe of her. I never even thought about doing comedy for real until two years ago when I was 38. So, I got a real <laughs> late start.
3: Well, I mean, Bernie Mac got a late start. So, it happens. You know, it happens to the best of us. Hey, and listen, um,
1: if I could do a tenth of the work and a tenth of the dollars that Bernie Mac did, I'll probably be... Uh, well, I'm already fat, but I'd be a fat and happy bastard. Oh,
3: yeah, you, you too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but listen, Tuesday, I do have to say thank you very much. Pass along again my thanks to Daryl. Tell everybody again, because we are getting ready to wrap up the show. Please tell everybody again the name of the book, where they can get it, and where they can find some of the other books that you guys have
3: written. Okay. Uh, comedians, Last Be a Lady. Written by Daryl and Tuesday Littleton. You can find the book at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or any fine bookstore. Um, Forefathers. You can also find at Amazon.com. Pimp Down: The Rise and Fall of Cat Williams. You can also find that at Amazon, Barnes and Noble. There you go. Um, Yeah, that's that's, that'll do it. My little library at home.
1: All right well I can't see the one at home until I go to Alabama and you guys invite me over
3: yeah definitely yeah it'll be just like wall-to-wall books that we've written so.
1: <laughs> well listen thank you very much for taking some time out and again thank Daryl um thank I look you forward so to for I know me. we're going to have you guys on again and uh, okay. I want to thank everybody for tuning in Toby thanks for listening to another show and we'll see you guys next week. have a great night everybody. Thanks for listening in to the Let's Be Frank show on ComedySlamRadio.com. If you missed this show or would like to catch up on past shows, visit us on Stitcher Radio and iTunes at Let's Be Franks Podcast. And have a great night. We'll see you next week.